0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect education workshop um, for people living with blood cancers, um, and actually um, and all of you on the call today. And I want to say this is a collaborative effort between DKMS and Cancer Care, and we're delighted to have this collaboration on this program today. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and DKMS, and also it is um, a program that we have collaborated with many other blood cancer organizations um, and other uh, cancer organizations as well to make this program possible. And because of the collaboration, particularly with DKMS, um, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now we have on this program today over 500 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we have um, international participants from Canada, China, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call. And I really want to thank you all for being on this call today. Now, I would like to um, acknowledge that this program was supported by Jazz Pharmaceuticals and DKMS, and uh, we are very grateful for that, um, the support of the program today and for the collaboration that's made this program possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is, um, is Dr. John Pagel. And uh, Dr. Pagel is um, chief hematologic malignancies program, Swedish Cancer Institute. Um, and Dr. Pagel is going to be addressing an overview of and types, overview and types of transplantation, guidelines for transplantation, and transplantation as a treatment option for multiple myeloma and lymphoma. So it's my great pleasure now to introduce Dr. Pagel.
2: Well, great. Thank you, Carolyn. It's nice to be with everybody. I, uh, Here you say that there's over 500 people on the call from around the entire country, but the audience will get three speakers from a small portion of the country in the Pacific Northwest. So this is a very Northwest-centric call with uh, Portland and Seattle represented here. I'll start with the first part of Seattle, perhaps. And uh, we're going to just give a somewhat broad overview of... Stem cell transplantation for patients with blood cancers, and it's a big topic. It's a lot to do in just a handful of minutes, but I want to give a good feel for what this looks like and why we actually do this. It's important, and it's uh, even important in 2016 when we have lots of new drugs and different types of therapies, but ultimately, the reason we do stem cell transplantation is with the goal to... in the majority of patients try to cure them of their blood cancer, or at least keep their disease away for as long as possible. And hopefully that means a major improvement in changing the natural history of each individual patient's blood cancer. So when we talk about stem cell transplantation, we really think about doing this in people who have a more advanced disease, perhaps people that might have failed other therapies and particular maybe multiple other therapies for their blood cancer. And really they need a different type of an approach. And those different approaches with regard to stem cell transplantation, or we used to call that bone marrow transplantation. We still call them the same things using stem cells. These transplants come in two major different kinds of approaches or categories. They're either what we call autologous stem cell transplants, or they're what we call allogeneic stem cell transplants. And what the difference is, largely between those two different kinds of transplants are the types of donor cells that we use for the transplant. An autologous transplant uses the patient's own cells. Their patient's own stem cells that we isolate typically from the blood, don't have to go into the bone marrow and pull them out of the bone marrow. We can get them in the blood and they're the patient's own cells. That's what we call an autologous transplant or auto transplant. I'll tell more about that in a second. The other flavor is to actually use somebody else's stem cells. Maybe it's a brother or a sister, or maybe it's someone that's unrelated, somebody that might be on another uh, part of the entire globe or another part of the world who is a, what we call a match donor. Or sometimes we even use parents or children, or even now in this day and age, we're using cord blood stem cells as a way to repopulate someone's bone marrow with a different patient's stem cells, and that's again called an allogeneic transplant. So what's the rationale behind these two different types of approaches in stem cell transplantation? Some of transplants are geared more for uh, certain patients and certain diseases and others for other patients and other diseases. Autologous stem cell transplants, using the patient's own cells, is really built around this idea that the dose of therapy actually makes a difference. Meaning that if we can get higher doses of, in particular, chemotherapy and sometimes radiation as well, if we can get very, very high doses of therapy into patients, hopefully we can eradicate all of the disease, perhaps the non-Hodgkin lymphoma as an example. And we do that. We can escalate the dose of therapy very high and show that we can actually cure people with perhaps non-Hodgkin lymphoma or Hodgkin lymphoma or other blood cancers by eradicating the disease, again, with very high doses of treatment. But when we do that, we will also kill all the normal blood-forming cells in the bone marrow. So to survive that and to do okay, which people do very well, we need to isolate the patient's own stem cells from their blood first before giving them the very high doses of chemotherapy and perhaps radiation as well. So we do a process we call stem cell mobilization and collection. So we can rev these stem cells up in the bone marrow such that they come out of the marrow and circulate in the blood. And we'll do that perhaps associated with some chemotherapy and certainly associated with some subcutaneous shots typically of a growth factor to stimulate those cells We'll collect those cells out of the blood and we'll store them in the freezer. That whole process is something we call apheresis and you may have already known about that or heard about that. It's a process that we do all the time. People tolerate it very well and uh, it's a highly successful approach to collect stem cells from the patient himself or herself and again, store them in the freezer. Then we'll come back with very high doses of the drugs, again, rarely, but sometimes we use total body irradiation as well. And we do that to wipe out all the disease, and we will also kill all the normal blood cells in the bone marrow. But that's okay, again, because what we can do is we can take those stem cells that are now stored in the freezer, we can take them out of the freezer, reintroduce them back to the patient, it's like a blood transfusion, they're just reintroduced intravenously, And these cells are very smart. These stem cells know where to go. They find their home, they set up shop in the bone marrow and they go on over usually a couple of weeks to start making normal blood cells, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. And patients do fine and get through all of that and actually can uh, do well from controlling the, the disease in that way. Certainly has potential for cure in many people, as I've said, and Uh, improvements in long-term survival and I'll say a few words about that with myeloma and lymphoma in particular in just a minute. But let me just talk about the other kind of approach that you'll hear more about uh, from Dr. Maziarz and Dr. Scott is using allogeneic stem cell uh, as part of a transplant. So again, somebody else's cells. So commonly we'll look for those cells from, as I have said, a donor who's perhaps a brother or sister. If that doesn't uh, become readily available, we might look for unrelated donors in a nationwide, uh, or I should say worldwide search. And we're commonly able to find what we call a matched donor. In the unusual cases where we can't, we sometimes look at patients' parents or children, as I've said, and also explore cord blood. And so the idea here may be the same concept of giving very high doses of therapy, but we're using someone else's cells. And the advantage of using someone else's stem cells, an allogeneic transplant, is that one, those stem cells are never going to be con- contaminated with the, malignant, the malignancy or the cancer. Of course, the donor doesn't have a cancer, so we don't have the risk of reintroducing any cancer cells back into the patient. And also what we're doing when we give those donor cells from someone else is we're able to repopulate the patient with a new immune system. So it's the immune system cells from the donor that we really rely on to provide us a major effect in controlling the disease. And I'll say a word about that, but let me say that allogeneic transplants can be very high, associated with very high doses of chemotherapy and radiation, as I've described before with the autologous transplant. But that kind of an approach of using someone else's cells and very high doses of treatment is really reserved for patients who are a little bit on the more younger side, and that's all a relative term, maybe under the age of 55 or somewhere in there, maybe younger people even uh, more so. But we have to also remember that most patients who have blood cancers are older than that. They're in their 60s or 70s, perhaps. and We actually do a different type of transplant for those patients that I'm sure many people have heard of, and that's called a reduced intensity transplant. So it's still an allogeneic transplant using someone else's cells as a a, a donor, but we don't give the very high doses of chemotherapy or radiation. We actually just give a little bit of therapy just to suppress the patient's own immune system so that the donor cells can be infused Uh, and that those cells won't be rejected. And over a little bit of time, that immune system, those immune system cells can take hold, those new donor immune system cells can take hold in the patient, the recipient. And over time, we rely on those immune system cells or that new immune system to eradicate the cancer. That's something we call a graft versus disease or graft versus tumor effect. And the graft is the donor cells. And of course, we're relying again on those donor immune system cells to target the cancer and kill it. And that's a very effective, uh, well-proven uh, approach that we do all the time, not just in this country, but throughout the entire world. Now, you'll hear much more about some of the side effects that go with these approaches, um, in particular from Dr. Maziarz, and I will leave that to him. Um, but. Uh, These kinds of approaches are uh, major advances for how we actually take care of patients. And I will say that in myeloma or non-Hodgkin lymphoma, transplants are a major role of how we actually approach patients with the idea of hopefully curing them them or again, providing some long-term benefit, changing the natural history. And I'll just say a few words about that as I was asked to. Let me just say that most patients who get a transplant use their own cells if they have an underlying disease that is multiple myeloma or non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So autologous transplantation is not uncommon in patients who uh, have those diseases. Again, there are lots of different reasons that we might be doing this, but overall what we're doing is trying to provide either a major long-term benefit from keeping the disease from coming back or actually providing a benefit where it might never come back. And that's um, different for every single individual patient, but we know that it's something we can do very safely. Autologous transplants, people do extremely well. Um, Chances are that you might have an infection or you certainly might have some other issues such as diarrhea or nausea, but we're very successful in doing those kinds of transplants for those patients. And that's something that's been shown in many trials to be very important. So, even in this day and age where we have all of these new treatments, I want to be clear that transplant isn't for everybody, but if it's right for a specific patient, that they will likely benefit from it and likely do very well with it. Well, I've talked for about 10 or 11 minutes, I think, is what I was asked to, and I gave a broad overview about this, but I'm happy at the end of discuss questions, but I think you're going to get a lot more uh, deeper information on this from Dr. Maziars next, so I'll turn it back to Carolyn at this time and let uh, her direct us there. Thank you.
1: Oh, Thank you very much, Dr. Pago, and uh, wonderful, really very comprehensive presentation. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Richard Maziarz, and Dr. Maziarz is Medical Director, Adult Blood Cancer, um, Blood Cancer and uh, Marrow Stem Cell Transplant Program. Professor of Medicine, Knight Cancer Institute, Oregon Health, and Science University. And Dr. Maziarz is going to be uh, addressing a transplantation as a treatment option for leukemia, practical tips to manage post-treatment concerns, graft-versus-host disease, and quality-of-life concerns. Now, it's my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Maziaris.
3: Yeah, hi. Thanks for everyone who's on the call, and I'll be um, try to be concise and deliver some information that will be of interest. First, I would talk about acute leukemia, um, which is what we're going to talk about. Um, There's about 20,000. There's two types of acute leukemia. There's acute myeloid and acute lymphoid. There's about 20,000 patients a year diagnosed with myeloid leukemia. Another 6,500 have acute lymphocytic leukemia. So it's only about 27,000 people total. But it turns out, which is, of interest when you think this is a small number of patients compared to uh, the other big cancers like lung cancer or colon cancer, all that you hear about. But there was actually a study from the National Cancer Institute in 2010. It turned out that the care of leukemia was actually the sixth most expensive Cancer care in the country, and it's because it is this—it is combination of transplant. It's very intensive. It's very large teams of people. You know, infectious disease, critical care. A lot of people are taking care of a relatively small number of people. I just want to bring that in perspective because that does, you know, impact um, how we approach that. We recognize it's a big team effort to the care. Now, with regard to uh, leukemia, in the past. you know, transplantation absolutely cures leukemia. And leukemia is a disease of the bone marrow. And if if the bone marrow is a factory, it makes red cells, platelets, it makes white cells. And if you have a, if your factory is damaged, the only way to fix it sometimes is to replace it. And that's what transplant is doing. It's replacing the factory. Now, in the past it was no question that we cured leukemia with transplant. But I mean, this is what doctor Pagel was alluding to. We always used the same tool. We had a we had a hammer, we used it, and that was our chemotherapy approaches or our radiation approaches. But when you actually looked at the total number of patients with leukemia who could be cured, it was only five to ten percent. And one of the reasons is that we were, you know, limiting our ability to treat the vast majority of patients with leukemia. Leukemia increases with age. AML increases with age. The average age that someone presents is age 67 in the, in the United States. So 50% of people are going to be, you know, over age 67 and probably another 25% are going to be over age 50 or, or higher. And so in this cases, you know, when we say we transplant, and this is how this is where we were around the year 1997, 1998, 2000, you know, age 50 was as high as a lot of centers went. And so, yeah, we cure, could cure patients, but we didn't cure enough. And I think what, you know, what we have gained out of the last 10 to 15 years is a, is a bigger, broader look at how do we fix leukemia, how do we address leukemia, and how do we address the people with leukemia. And that's where we've made a, a huge amount of progress. First of all, what do we do with leukemia? The basic treatment is chemotherapy. You know, that can be given in many places across the country. It isn't necessarily a transplant center. We've got to kill that fast-growing cell. But what's – and then the goal is to get remission. And remission means I can't see – I cannot see the cells, but I know they're there. And if I just give one month of chemotherapy induction and then basically stop – 100% 100% of patients will relapse. The disease will come back. You need something else. The big question, and this is one of the, where the research in leukemia care has been for the last 20 years, is what is the something else? And who needs the something else? And I'd sit back and say, I think what we've learned is that there's a whole host of now molecular tests. When you actually look at, we say acute myeloid leukemia, AML, we say ALL. I think there's some recent um, Studies say it's well over 50 types now of disease because we have now new molecular tools to separate the disease groups. And what's the purpose of separating them? Is we want to understand the risk, the risk of disease coming back despite our our treatments. So when we say you have low risk or intermediate risk or high risk, we're talking about the risk is if I give you chemotherapy alone, the easiest approach. What's the likelihood of you being cured? What's the, the risk of the disease coming back? And, and we use this up front. You'll see this over and over in our our descriptions of leukemia. If you're low-risk disease, we'll do everything we can not to offer you a transplant because we think you can be cured up front with chemotherapy. If disease comes back, then we'll use transplant for cure. If you have been told that you have molecular high-risk disease, We're going to do everything we can to figure out how to transplant you up front. You know, as soon as we can, we'll use chemotherapy to gain remission. We'll find a donor, as Dr. Pagel was describing. We'll look at, you know, a family member. We'll look at unrelated. We'll use cord blood banks. We'll look at any source of stem cells to see if we can find a donor. And then we'll work toward getting you to a transplant. If you're intermediate, you're just that. We're going to try and assess, do you need a transplant now, or, or is it such that we can maybe see if we can fix you later? Either way, we know that transplant cures leukemia, but we also know that it's really important. We don't try to transplant everybody. We transplant people who need um, the care now, as Dr. Pagel also just talked about, there's standard transplants, which is how we've been doing it, and now we're hearing these, what we call, mini transplants. And I think this is really where a lot of the progress has been. Again, if half the patients are um, over age 67, they'll never have a transplant if age 50 is your, your cutoff. Well, what we've learned, and this is data that's come out of, of, the, of the world of, of experimentation, if we can reduce the intensity of the of the regimen, we're not going to, when I give you chemotherapy or radiation right before transplant, it's to kill off the bone marrow and then I'm going to put new cells in. But maybe I don't have to be as, if I can develop a regimen that is very limited intensity but is more rapidly going to lead to the takeover of the donor graft in your body, I can get the cells in faster, I can get a new immune system in faster and I can eradicate disease faster well, it turns out that this has been one of the success stories in transplant in the last 10 years. And we now know that we routinely, we routinely transplant patients into their, in the 60s and into their 70s. Um, I think a very robust person in the 80s can actually can go undergo transplant. It was nothing that we ever dreamed of 15 years ago. And I could say, does it work? Well, there's a lot of studies that are done up front and prospectively, like we call it looking going forward, that suggests it works. I think one of the most important studies looked at acute, leuke- acute myeloid leukemia and first remission and who people who had donors who went to donor transplant who were older. And again, if we do our job, if John and Bart and myself do our job of, of being honest and identifying someone who can get through it, um, and we can, we can then do a transplant and get through it someone successfully. And the data from this international registry that was published that actually really influenced the country said if you're over age 65 and you have a donor transplant, you can have the exact same outcome of someone who with acute leukemia who's age 40 to 55. The key is, is understanding what partly we understand the disease factors. But we also have to pay a lot more attention now to what we call are the donor, the recipient factors, the patient-specific factors, and as well as the transplant-specific factors. And now when you come for transplant with acute leukemia, one, we're evaluating your disease for sure, but we're also spending a lot of time to understand who you are as a recipient. We want to know about what medical conditions you've had. Do you have genetic issues? Um, hereditary aspects here to issues in disease because that's going to influence a decision and then what we have are transplant specific uh, con- you know conditions which regimen can we give what have you had before you know the tr- if you've had a lot of treatment for your d- disease before that's going to impact like what we choose afterward so there's this is part of the decision making that goes into um providing a transplant benefit for patients with acute leukemia, but it's absolutely the standard that takes place at a transplant center. It's not something we anticipate will happen at your a primary hematology office, Um, and that's why they actually work with us. We collaborate. we all there as part of the team to take care of you. Now as we talk about this then, so we we let's say we have now, you have leukemia, we want to cure you, we want to take you to transplant. Well, what are we going to rely on is we're going to rely on, as Dr. Pagel said, that we're going to be able to get a graft from somebody else and put that graft in you. That graft is is stem cells that's going to replace the factory. You're going to make blood again because of it, but it's also going to be a new immune system. And this is that graft versus malignancy effect that he referred to. We did studies in the 1980s which actually pushed the, the age limit from age 30 to 50 for transplant. Before, and then before 1985, age 30 was as high as we went because everybody died of graft-versus-host if you were older. And then basically people figured out why people got graft-versus-host and developed therapies that would eliminate it. And it's a product of your own immune system. Your immune system has evolved to fight infection. Well, when, when you transfer cells... And it sees something that looks foreign. As far as it's concerned, it's seeing a bad infection, and it wants to attack. And so, graft versus host disease is the immune system from the donor in your body transferred to your body, and then all of a sudden it says, "I want to reject this. It doesn't look right." You know, we talk about patients who've had a kidney transplant. They transplant immune cells. They have they have their own. You get a kidney from somebody else, and your body's immune system wants to reject it. We call that host versus graft. And patients who get a kidney transplant are gonna be on medicines to suppress their immune system for life. This is the opposite in what we see in our, in our transplant. We take an immune system from a donor and put it into a recipient. And that immune system then has to be trained. If we do that up front without any type of medication, we often will see that we're gonna create a new disease and we call that graft versus host. The, the immune cells want to attack the body and early on, we see it, it's a widespread total body disease. You can see skin rashes. You can see the liver get attacked and people get, get jaundiced. Um, you also, one of the biggest issues, it can attack the GI tract. And the GI tract, again, I tell this to all my patients, you know, you put your hand on your with your stomach and it doesn't feel that big, but if you stretch it out, it's 30 feet long worth of bowel. And that's 30 feet long worth of tissue that can be attacked. And people can get a lot of diarrhea, and it often takes a lot of healing. So... That's what the big things about what we call is acute graft-versus-host disease. The immune system from the donor goes in you and then sees your whole body as foreign and wants to attack it. Now, what can we do to protect that? Is one, right up front, we have medicines that we and we use for prophylaxis. We, protect, we have... There's different regimens that have been established over the years. There's two-drug or three-drug regimens that are designed to suppress and train that immune system to grow in your body and, and ultimately take your body as its own. Um, sometimes, though, we see, after, despite the prophylaxis, and it's about, you know, 20 to 30% in family donors and about 45% in done related donors, we still see graft-versus-host breakthrough. And then we have a second set of therapies that we use to treat graft-versus-host. Graft-versus-host becomes a new disease. And I tell many, many of my patients, you're going to trade a disease for your disease. You have leukemia for which we don't think um, we're going to be able to control and survive long term and we're going to turn you into someone that we cure the leukemia but then we while we but we're going to spend another amount of time six to twelve months maybe maybe two years maybe three years training that donor immune system in your body to accept your body as its own graft versus host clinically is when that immune system you know creates a problem it has a flare it attacks your body and then we're always there to to develop therapies to get it under control. Many, many people get graft-versus-host disease. We're not afraid of graft-versus-host. We do know that sometimes graft-versus-host can be lethal, but fortunately it's that's a low percentage. Um, I do think why do we put up with it, though, is exactly what Dr. Pagel said, though, is we've also learned that if you have graft-versus-host, you have a lower chance of developing, the uh, having your disease come back. Because despite all of this that we go through, there's still a risk the disease can recur, but graft versus host decreases that likelihood, and so a lot of the work over the last 20 years, and we is trying to dissect the means by which we can take out the cells that cause graft versus host and leave those healthy immune cells that provide that graft versus leukemia. I can just tell you that work continues. Now, just because I'm also going to be attention to pay attention at the time. Um, So what does this mean? Well, I also talk to people and tell them if you have someone has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis as a teenager. At 50, when they're 50 years old, we still pay attention to that medical history that they have, they've had Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. That's an autoimmune disease. That's the immune system that attacks your body. In graft versus host, we can see this also. It could come back, and it, it can come back. It could get it under control, and then all of a sudden, two years, three years, four years later you can have a sunburn, and you can reactivate an immune system, and you can reactivate graph versus host. graft versus host is just an immune system that has memory. You want memory. When you get vaccinated, you get vaccinated to get immunologic memory. Graph versus host has immunologic memory, and it can trigger, and it can come back. So part of our goal and part of our efforts is to train the immune system in your body not to cause a medical problem, but it but you get the benefit of the leukemic control, but recognizing it could flare. And if it flares, we have to have tools to treat it. I think that um, my, you know, the textbooks tell us that after three years, you don't see any episodes of chronic graft versus host disease. I'm sure everyone has the same experience as I. I've had a patient nine years after transplant, never had clinical graft versus host, basically presented nine years later with dry eyes, dry mouth, trouble swallowing, and we diagnosed her chronic GVHD for the first time. So survivorship then becomes key. We're now talking long term, and I think this is the good message of transplant. When you actually look at patients, and there's been studies now from that same international registry, if you are go through transplant with leukemia and you're alive at two years without evidence of disease, You, it's between 80 and 90% chance that you're going to be alive at 10 years and even 15 years and 20 years. We cure leukemia. What we have to do is pay attention, though, to what does it take then to go on with life. And I could say I don't really have a... We can answer do this as a question and answer, but I, there is a major effort worldwide about what we can do to... Um, enhanced survivorship after transplant. Part of it's being aware of long-term organ risks. You know, it turns out eight years to 10 years after transplant, we're seeing some cardiac disease. Well, why is that? The prednisone we use for treating graft-versus-host contributes to um, uh, diabetes. You get hypertension. You get overweight. The metabolic syndrome comes present. So we're paying attention to cardiac issues. We really are saying, the simple things like physical exercise, maintaining, you know, good healthy health monitoring and general care um, is going to be critical. We know, we're very aware that returning to work is important. Uh, financial toxicity is a huge effort, and a lot of people have go through all the effort to find out they've got to, they've lost a lot of dollars and they have to rebuild. I think one of the most important things that we see is that in it's there is a lot of it's an uphill battle. We cure people. But this is a disease of an individual, but it's also a disease of a community. It's a family. People can be depressed, but the worst thing you can do then is just try to hold it in. Everyone wants to be there for you. We want to be there for you, your family members who've been there all alongside. Everyone knows it's a long-term. Reach out to people. Use support systems. Actually, I love the groups that are sponsoring us. They do a great job in just providing that Resource that will allow you to to get to know you're not the only one out there. So yeah, leukemia is definitely curable with transplant. We cure children, we cure older patients, but we also have to recognize now that we have responsibility to the people we cure, and that's what a lot of our our current research in the country are. I think I'll end my comments there for now.
1: Oh, that was that was outstanding, uh, Doctor Mavarez. That was really an outstanding presentation and very. Uh, passionate and just very outstanding. So thank you so much. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Bart Scott. Uh, Dr. Scott is assistant uh, member, transplantation program, clinical research division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, assistant professor of medicine, division of oncology, University of Washington, director of hematology and hematologic malignancies. Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Scott is going to address transplantation as a treatment option for myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPN, communicating with the healthcare team, clinical trials, and follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Scott.
4: Thank you very much, Carolyn. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to all of the listeners today about a very important topic. Um, myeloproliferative neoplasms is, is a disease of the bone marrow, and it can be cured with Stem cell transplantation. Um, it's basically a disorder where you, where you make too many of cells. So, in this case, uh, many of the patients are making too many uh, red blood cells, uh, white blood cells, or platelets. And they can have a lot of problems from that, like um, clotting, they can have bruising problems, um, they can have excessive fatigue. And it's not only an, an issue of making too many of the cells that circulate in the blood but it's also an issue of increased inflammation. So a lot of these patients will have excessive fatigue that's out of proportion to the degree of anemia. And anemia just basically means a low red cell count. And in many cancer patients, the reason why they're fatigued is because of low red cell counts. But in NPN, in in particular, myeloproliferative neoplasms, it's this increased inflammation that they have. Now, in regards to transplant as a treatment option for myeloproliferative neoplasm, It's generally reserved for a category of MPN that we call myelofibrosis. And myelofibrosis is essentially excess scar tissue that forms within the marrow itself. And this can result either from having um, a, a previous MPN, a different type that goes into myelofibrosis, or it can just happen naturally. So there's a disease called polycythemia vera, and that's where you make too many red blood cells. It's a rare disease, about two cases per 100,000. There's a disease called essential thrombocytosis where you make too many platelets. That's also very rare, about 2.5 cases per 100,000. And both of those diseases can subsequently go into myelofibrosis. And it's essentially excess scar tissue that forms within the marrow itself. Now, this is a cancer of the bone marrow, but the cancer actually isn't the scar tissue. There's cells that release cytokines and other things that actually damage the marrow that causes the scar tissue. And I think that's an important concept for patients to know, that in myelofibrosis it's not the scar tissue itself that's the cancer. And the reason why that's important is because many of the treatments that we have, including transplant and non-transplant options, can help the disease, but the scar tissue doesn't go away immediately. It takes time to resolve. So it's like an injury, just like you might cut your skin. The scar tissue over time will get better over time as long as you don't keep re-injuring yourself. Well, what transplant does in particular is that it removes the cancer agents and then over time, as you get farther out from transplant, the scar tissue does improve. But it is not expected that the scar tissue is going to completely resolve at the very first time of your transplant. and That's a little bit different from other types of cancers because it can take a little bit more time after the transplant for the disease to get completely better. So I made an outline of, of important topics that I would like to talk about, but uh, when discussing transplant as a treatment option for myeloproliferative neoplasms, one of the issues that I thought of this very important patients is when it should be considered. And we don't really consider transplant as an initial option for patients who have essential thrombocytosis, which is too many platelets or polycythemia vera, which is too many red blood cells, um, because these patients can be treated with other mechanisms, um, such as hydroxyurea or phlebotomy that works very well with a low toxicity profile. But in myelofibrosis, that's a little bit more serious disease, and frequently patients who have myelofibrosis are heavily dependent on transfusions. They can have big spleens, which causes a lot of problems, Uh, with their abdomen with pain and decreased appetite, and they can have significant weight loss and fevers and night sweats and itching. And so it's a little bit more serious condition and generally has a shorter survival than the other types of myeloplyphid neoplasms. But even among myelofibrosis, as Dr. Mazier says, we do consider risk. And so we have our own prognostic scoring system for myelofibrosis. And in general, we would not offer a transplant to patients who have low or intermediate one risk disease because of the um, potential of what we call treatment related mortality. And that's dying from the transplant itself. So while transplant can be curative, it also has a lot of toxicities associated with it. So we want to make sure that we use this big gun, if you will, when we need to. And we generally reserve this type of intervention for more advanced cases of myelofibrosis, such as intermediate two or high risk disease. And then in regards to how, much of that was already discussed by Dr. Pagel, but for um, myeloplyphic neoplasms, we're generally talking about allogeneic transplants. So that means from someone else and not from yourself. And that's because it can be hard to even get cells from a patient with myelofibrosis, but also generally these cells are actually cancer cells and it's very difficult to isolate them out. And so autologous transplants generally don't work very well for myelofibrosis. We prefer to use allogeneics, so from someone else, so from an unrelated donor or from a matched sibling donor. Um, There is a treatment that's FDA approved for myelofibrosis. It's called um, JAKATHI or and Sometimes it can be helpful to put patients on that drug in a pre-transplant setting to try to improve their conditioning before they go, to try to improve their overall health before they go into their transplant. And then in regards to conditioning, much of that was touched uh, on upon by Dr. Maziars. Um, one of the major issues with myelofibrosis is, is, is engraftment, so get, actually getting the cells in. And in fact, myelofibrosis is one of those types of um, cancers in which engraftment is, is a bigger issue. For most of the other types of cancers that we've talked about, um, engraftment, actually getting the cells in and working, isn't as much of an issue. So. Conditioning regimens are particularly important because in general, the higher the conditioning regimen is, the more successful you can be in getting the engrafted cells to work. And so this might be even more of an important issue in patients with myelofibrosis. And then in regards to stem cell source, as Dr. Pagel mentioned, we can get it from the blood or we can get it from the bone marrow. And um, because of the issues with engrafting and myelofibrosis, those stem cells take a little bit longer to work And because of the residual scar tissue, it's not uncommon for patients with myelofibrosis to continue to need um, transfusion support uh, for a long period of time after you infuse the stem cells. So there are some people who who would say that perhaps this is the case in which peripheral blood stem cells might be preferred over marrow because even though they might have a higher rate of chronic GVHD, they do have a a quicker engraftment rate compared to bone marrow as a stem cell source. And then finally, in regards to the transplant, I wanted to mention spleen-related issues. So many of the patients with myelofibrosis go into transplant with a big spleen. And one of the controversial topics that we face as physicians who do transplant for myelofibrosis is should we take that spleen out or should we leave it in? And there is literature to support that. There's also literature to say that it doesn't matter. And so it's a really controversial topic right now in the field of um, stem cell transplant for myelofibrosis. But having a big spleen does increase the risk of a problem with your liver that we call venoocclusive disease. And so the patients with myelofibrosis who have a big spleen are at higher risk of this uh, venoocclusive disease of the liver. And there are new treatments that one can use now to treat the venoocclusive disease of the liver. But it is important to know that patients with myelofibrosis with a big spleen have that risk. And then the other problem with the big spleen is that there's... A little bit even longer time for the stem cells to start working, so patients with a big spleen often need um, a longer period for the stem cells to work, and a longer period of being uh, platelet and red cell transfusion dependent. Now a next topic that I was asked to discuss that's, um, that's unrelated, but for which I have a lot of experience, is communicating with your healthcare team, so it's kind of transitioning just to an overall approach. And, and I did write down some important things that I, I thought as a physician I always find very helpful um, if patients do to, to try to improve our communication. And one is to write your questions down beforehand. I think that is just so important because it helps you to focus on, on what, you, what you're worried about. And I know as a physician, I, I really always appreciate it when the patients write their questions down beforehand. It's very helpful to focus the discussion. And also for you to remember because you can jot down what the answers are to those questions. And then if you'd like to bring a recording device to the, um, to the, to the conference, I think all of us would, would definitely agree to that. Um, I think it helps you remember and you can re- replay that. I do encourage patients to do that. And you can also ask to be CC'd on a copy of your note if, if, you're, if you're not already, already receiving copies of your note. So that you can find out, you know, what's, what's exactly going on and what your physician is concerned about. And then don't be afraid to ask for a second opinion. I think most of us in this field have a very good ego, and you're not going to hurt someone's ego by asking for a second opinion. And if your physician is offended by asking for a second opinion, I would say that perhaps that's not the best position for you. And then another topic I was asked to address was clinical trials, and, uh, and I definitely support participation in clinical trials, there, there is data that, that has been published looking at patients who got care under a clinical trial and those who did not, and the patients who got care under a clinical trial in general received better care, not worse. So participating in a clinical trial does not imply that you're going to receive worse care. You also have potential access to newer agents, with, which could be better. It's The clinical trials uh, advance the medical field, it improves care for everyone, including patients that may come after you, and then you should know that these clinical trials are heavily reviewed by multiple agencies and multiple physicians to ensure scientific validity and also medical interest, and and all of these studies are reviewed by an IRB, and all of these IRBs have community members on it who say, okay, you know, this would be important for patients. The way clinical trials are operated now are not how it was in the past. These clinical trials go through a heavy review system, and there's multiple people who look at it to make sure that it's of worthwhile interest and and tries tries to make sure that it's gonna be as safe as possible for the participants. And then the final topic I was asked to address was follow-up care. I I would just say that it's important to establish a good relationship with your physician. Um, I do believe that transplant patients should be seen at least yearly. Um, by someone with expertise in the field of transplantation because, as Dr. Mazier has mentioned, chronic GVHD, which is a common problem, can come and go. And so it's really important that you have an established relationship with someone who you could call if you have some problem in the interim and someone who has experience in treating chronic GVHD. And so I would say that there are these long-term complications and that's why it's so important to have this follow-up care. And it's not only chronic GVHD, but there is a risk of secondary cancers and the most common secondary cancer is skin cancer. So I would say for all of those reasons, it's very important to have a physician with experience in transplantation that you see on a regular basis. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for their attention, and I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, Thank you very much, Dr. Scott. That was really very, very focused and very excellent. Thank you. Very terrific. Thanks. And um, our next speaker is um, Ann Archer. Um, Ann Archer is an oncology social worker. Um, she is a Transplant Collection Center Manager for DKMS, and um, Ms. Archer is going to address the free support programs from DKMS and searching for donor resources. Ms. Archer?
0: Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner, for allowing DKMS to be a part of this important workshop, first of all. Um, I, I definitely really appreciate Cancer Care's continued dedication to providing education and support to those affected by cancer. I uh, also want to thank Dr. Scott, Dr. Macy Arch, and Dr. Pagel, for taking the time to share such valuable knowledge with us today. Um, DKS, DMS is the largest bone marrow donor center in the world, and it started with one family's struggle to find a match for their wife and mother. Every day, we lead the fight against blood cancer by working with families, communities, and organizations to recruit more donors for the National Bone Marrow Registry and to provide patients with second chances of life. Uh, We really work to empower those affected by blood cancers, their families, and their communities by allowing them to channel their frustrations after receiving a diagnosis into something more positive and meaningful. So we strive to raise awareness that having more donors and more ethnic diversity on the registry increases the chance of finding matches for all persons in need. There are many ways people can help our life-saving mission. You can volunteer. You can raise awareness by spreading the word about the need for more people on the national registry. Uh, you can also host a bone marrow drive at no cost at your work, school, or in your community. At DKMS, we have also implemented a patient, caregiver, and survivor support and research a resource Facebook page called Make It Count. You can connect with others in the bone marrow transplant community by visiting facebook.com slash groups slash make it DKMS. Uh, we're not only committed to finding potential lifesavers uh, through donation, but also encouraging patients survivors and caregivers to make their experience count. If you and your doctor have decided to pursue allogeneic transplant as a treatment option, your medical team will typically first test your family members to see if any are a match. If you cannot afford this or your insurance does not cover family typing, have your medical team contact DKMS. We provide free HLA typing of patients and first-degree family members, including siblings, parents, and children. Um, If you don't have a match within your family, your medical team will then start a formal search for an unrelated donor through the national registry. Uh, DKMS works closely with transplant centers across the country as well as with like-minded patient service organizations such as Cancer Care to support you and your loved ones through this really difficult time. Uh, For more information about DKMS, you can visit our website at www.dkms.org. Once again, on behalf of DKMS, I'd like to thank Cancer Care, as well as all the speakers participating today. Thank
1: you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Archer. That was really excellent, and it was a pleasure working with you and DKMS. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Sarah Kelly, and Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she is going to uh, describe the free psychosocial services from cancer care as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over uh, to Ms. Kelly.
5: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'd like to thank everyone on the call today. I think we've gotten a lot of really good information. So as Dr. Messner said, I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. I work with many people who've been through a transplant and their loved ones. We've been talking today about managing your care and your quality of life, and I'd like to talk about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be part of the network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face in the New York area and over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also do face-to-face in the New York area, over the phone nationally, and online, actually, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs, like the one we're on today. We also provide practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, and we do have some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed, master's-level oncology social workers, and as I said earlier, they're completely free of charge. An oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so his or her support network. We're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands. I know that uh, we were talking about financial toxicity earlier, and this is a huge side effect of going through uh, cancer diagnosis. And uh, we can also help with physical changes, social adjustments, psychological impact in care. And really adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process and I actually consider it to be an important part of treatment. One of the things I'd like for you to take home with you today is that you don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to walk the path alone. We're here with you. I know Dr. Maziar has talked about, you know, the large teams of people who really are with you when you think about the medical team. Support is a huge piece of this. In joining a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. Meeting with an oncology social worker or individual counseling really gives you a space that's yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And the connections really can help lessen the isolation you may experience going through this. And feeling well emotionally, I find it just helps you better deal with the diagnosis and treatment. So I'm very briefly just going to talk a little bit about um, what we have going on now in terms of the support groups. Right now we have an online support group for anyone who's diagnosed with blood cancer. We also have online support groups for a general patient group. That means you'd be with others uh, with different diagnoses. And we also have uh, a number of caregiver support groups online. In addition to the online, again, we do provide the telephone And the face-to-face, both counseling and support groups, we currently have general face-to-face support group in the New York area, as well as a caregiver group, and the same for the phone. If you're interested in any of cancer care services, call us. You can reach us on our Hope line. It's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. You can also visit us on our website. We have a very comprehensive website that has a lot of information, not just on our support services, but actually on all of our programs, as well as on your diagnosis and treatment and ways of coping as you go through this. And the website is www.cancercare.org. You know, we've learned a lot from today's program. It's a lot of information to take in and get your arms around. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. If you have... Any questions about today's program uh, or about our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And, again, remember, you're not alone in this. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your
1: attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. card That was really excellent. And now we do have time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, uh Stephanie, to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If you don't get your question, we're then going to uh, give you information about how to get your questions answered. Um, and uh, Stephanie, do you want to explain how to queue up for questions?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touch telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the key, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, please press star then 1 to ask a question. We have
1: a question from Dr. Scott, from um, for Dr. Scott, from one of our online participants. Um, so the question is, for Dr. Scott, um, um, Dr. Scott mentioned that secondary cancers are risks, of specifically skin cancer. Is this true for all blood cancers? Uh, Dr. Scott, could you address that question, please?
4: Okay, I'm, I'm glad that that was asked because I should have been more specific. I refer, what I was referring to was complications from transplant. So. Um, when you get a transplant, you receive a lot of chemotherapy or radiation that we give before the infused stem cells. And one of the risks of the transplant itself is that you can get a different type of cancer after the transplant. And one of the most common different types of can- cancer is skin cancer.
1: Excellent, thank you. Um, and also, um, we have a question um, for, um, actually for Miss Kelly. Um, How does an online support group work? Could you address that, Ms. Kelly, please?
5: Absolutely. Excellent question. So the way our program works, it looks a lot like a message board. So you have access. It's private, meaning that it's password protected, so only you and the other group members and the social worker that facilitates the group have access to it. You have access 24-7. So that means if it's 1 in the morning and, you know, you're thinking about all of this and can't sleep, you can actually go on there and post. The groups are very active. so you'll. Find in the groups, people are posting at all times of the day, and really provide a lot of great support to each other.
1: Excellent. Well, I actually want to thank all of our speakers today. You've been phenomenal. It's been an amazing program, Um, and I know that we could go on, actually, actually, for a very good part of the day with many of your questions that we still have not answered yet. But I do want to remind all that this is a one-hour program, and in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. So I do want to address the fact that um, I want to give you information about how to get um, your questions answered um, um, when the, after the program ends. And so, um, so for those of you who have questions in terms of medical questions that you've not yet had answered, we do recommend that you would contact, of course, DKMS, um, as well as Leukemia and Pulmonary Society um, for questions that you may have that are medically focused. That would be really important to get those questions answered. And for those of you who have questions regarding the emotional and social aspects of coping with, um, with transplantation, with, with just um, wanting to join a support group or get some help with um, additional services for yourselves, we recommend that you certainly contact Cancer Care at one 800 813 which would be contacting Cancer Care for, to speak with one of our oncology social workers. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we don't want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with blood cancers and in, in coping with transplantation. We want you to know that you're part of this community of support and that we're here to help you and that um, there are many blood cancer organizations um, available for you to get help from as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.